Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 5 of the Korean War. Last time we looked through Mao Zedong's rise to power, and we brought his political career up to date with that of his contemporaries. Although he was a relative newcomer to the international system and to the polarising nature of the two camps, which was to characterise the Cold War, Mao would certainly have his uses for both sides. If the Americans could separate Mao from Stalin and 
get there with incentives before the Soviets, then they would be able to drive a major wedge between communism's two premier powers. This tactic would indeed be deemed Truman's great wedge by historians. On the other hand, if Stalin could make nice with Mao and overcome the reservations he had about the Chinese communist leadership, then the combined resources of the Chinese-Soviet bloc could well spell doom for any United States initiatives. Covering both outcomes and looking at what the perspectives of both the US and USSR with respect to China were, will take some doing, and will occupy our diplomatic analysis for the next few episodes as we bring the relationships of the three powers and their leaders up to speed. You may have noticed that our Korean War series is somewhat shy of Korea at this point, but that will change in due time, guys, so don't worry. I should also say that the episodes which are coming out here tackle history which isn't really talked about today. In fact, most people don't really know all that much about Sino-Soviet diplomacy, Least of all how the Chinese, Soviets and Americans all got on together. So I hope you'll enjoy this trek through the less well-travelled path of the Korean War. I for one am really looking forward to presenting it to you. So without any further ado I will now take you to the deeply paranoid recesses of Joseph Stalin's mind in early 1949. The song of the week this week is brought to you by Studio Earphones. Of course, it's not really, but I should talk for a little while about what Studio Earphones are and exactly what you can do if you're looking to get a new pair of listening equipment yourself. In the first place, you guys can get 15% off these quality products by simply using the code WDF. Go to studio.com and use the code WDF on any listening product you choose whether it's earbuds earphones whether it's the ones that are called regent earphones which are the ones i got the fancy ones for editing software or maybe you're someone who likes to run and not have the earbuds fall out of your ears in which case the in-ear earphones all of these of course can be wireless are for you studio offer a wide range of different quality products and not only do they sound good they also look good too so if you want to start a Great listening journey today. Check out Studio Earphones now. Studio.com and the code is WDF. The song of the week this week is Mariah by Clarice Vance. Clarice Vance was known as the Southern Singer and in 1905 she recorded one of many different iterations of this song with her then-husband at the time. The song is almost like a step back into history, so I hope you guys enjoy it. We've got a load of these different songs to come. Some of them are from very early on in the century, others more like in the 1940s or 50s. But I think this variety in the different songs, be it their age or their style or what have you, gives you guys a great sweep of music over the different decades. So I hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back with episode 5 of the Korean War. Not a higher flyer than Mariah is a town. 
country gal, but I'm a farmer too. And if you just say you love me, why, I'll buy a farm for you. If we can't raise corn and taters on the land down not too sore, we'll raise the very chickens and we carry nothing more. Mariah, Mariah, you set my heart on fire. It's you I most desire of all the gals around. Oh, Mariah, 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 of your love I never tire, for there's not a higher flyer than Mariah in the town. By early 1949, it was clear to Joseph Stalin, as much as it was clear to Chairman Mao Zedong, that the outcome of the Chinese Civil War was swinging firmly in favour of the Communists. In Stalin's mind, this presented as many challenges as it did opportunities. In the first place, as we have seen with the example of Yugoslavia, Stalin did not like the idea of independent communism. There was no such thing as a Chinese interpretation of communism, or a Yugoslav interpretation, or a Polish, or a Bulgarian, or a Hungarian, etc. There was a sole form of communism, that which was controlled and directed by Moscow, and every other form was heretical, the followers of which were to be ostracised, or worse. Stalin had largely been in a position to enforce this idea, since the Red Army held sway over so much of Eastern Europe, and since no regional power there could seriously hope to contend the Soviet claim. Any power that did stick its head above the socialist parapet, such as Josip Tito and his Yugoslav communists, were attacked rhetorically and ideologically as an abomination, a warping of the communist teaching, a nationalist deviation. For some time, Stalin had watched Mao rise through the ranks of the communist Chinese party, which Mao, of course, had helped to establish. And while Stalin was initially supportive of Mao's position in China and gave him regular advice, it seems that once Mao managed to acquire enough power to seem threatening, Stalin began to grow sour on the idea of Mao Zedong as the leader of a united communist China. Stalin did not want a united China, he wanted the civil war to continue, and dealt as favourably with the Republicans under Chiang Kai-shek as the Americans did, at least until the civil war began to explicitly turn against those same Republicans. The Soviet deals with the Chinese, including that treaty signed in August 1945, which conferred extensive territorial compensation on the Soviets and permitted the continuation of a Soviet occupation of several ports, were all conducted with the aim of establishing a ruling coalition made up of communist and republican elements. Stalin wanted this in public because he said it would stabilise China and give everyone what they wanted. Isn't that nice? We must also remember that in 1945 it was far from inevitable that the Chinese Civil War would flare up again. The country after all had been through the ringer with the war against Japan as we saw in the last episode and scenes of utter devastation and ruin permeated the countryside, especially in the zones where the Japanese had actually occupied in addition, even if the civil war resumed, there was no guarantee that Chiang Kai-shek wouldn't be capable of pushing the communists out. It was not clear yet in 1945 that Mao possessed any clear advantage, and only once the civil war resumed and the state of Chiang's forces, several catastrophic defeats and Mao's massively successful recruitment appeal turned the tide could the outcome be certain. This explains the continued American aide, Chiang Kai-shek, who as we saw last time was far and away the preferred candidate for taking over China's government in any post-war settlement. 
In private, though, Stalin was treating China the same way he treated the other new Soviet satellites in Eastern Europe. A coalition would reduce the Chinese Communist Party's military capabilities and could divide its ranks, further weakening it. A weakened Communist Party would be naturally beholden to the Soviet Union, which meant it would be amenable to Soviet instruction and to Stalin's direction. The weaker the Chinese were, the more they would need the help of the Soviets to make up the difference against the Republicans. By painting the Republicans as a boogeyman, Stalin could also ensure that Soviet support was necessary. Of course, he couldn't paint Chiang Kai-shek's regime as the boogeyman if Mao was able to roll over its main bases and push them onto Taiwan. So Stalin's goal remained keeping the Chinese civil war alive long enough to wrest concessions out of the communists. At the end of the day, Stalin's ambition for China was that it would remain dependent upon Soviet aid, Soviet influence, and the instructions of the Soviets. In this case, himself. Mao put a spanner in the works of this plan, and since Stalin couldn't remove Mao as he could an Eastern European leader, for example, he would settle instead for an overall weakening of the power base and governing apparatus that supported him to bring him back down to size. Park all of these concerns for a moment, just put a pin in everything I said, and consider the more imperialist aims which Stalin also wanted to ensure. Above all, Stalin was determined that the August 1945 treaty with China remained in place. Since Mao Zedong was known to be a Chinese nationalist, and a harsh critic of any foreign influence or semblance of lordship over Chinese land, Stalin was very wary about Mao getting absolute power, because he feared one of the first things Mao would do would be to tear up the 1945 treaty and condemn the Soviet occupation of portions of Mongolia and Manchuria. If he pushed Mao too hard, the Chinese would likely run into the loving arms of the West. Yet if he remained hesitant to lay down the law, Mao could interpret this as weakness and act as he wished in any case. Stalin was thus struck with the need to tread carefully, and he wasn't the only one. These were sensitive issues to Mao Zedong right up to the point of the Korean War, but the Chinese chairman's end goals were also quite straightforward. Even as the civil war continued with great communist successes, Mao remained transfixed on the idea of concluding this chapter of Chinese history decisively. However, once the Republicans evacuated to Taiwan in December 1949, what actually happened was that a new chapter opened in the civil war, which Mao proved unable to close, though not from lack of trying, as we'll see. The revolution must be spread to Taiwan and to external lands like Tibet, for his position, for Mao's position that is, to be truly secure and for the revolution to be complete. In addition, it was essential that the Russians, as Mao would likely have still seen them, be removed from parts of Manchuria and Mongolia, which undermined the image that Mao was trying to concoct. He could hardly claim to be a strong and capable leader if his so-called ally refused to leave Chinese territory behind. Mao believed that by renegotiating his hand with the Soviet Union, Chinese objectives could be secured, the revolution could be reinforced, and his own regime and leadership would be firmly established. He would have to normalise relations with Stalin before any other state, and demonstrate at least some measure of deference to Moscow before proceeding apace with the next part of his plan. That is, opening his country up to the world, including the capitalist Americans, thereby broadening the influence and increasing the options of Chinese communism. The last thing that Mao wanted was to become a Soviet satellite, understandably, and he had no intentions of becoming a pliable, hesitant ruler either. He had, after all, fought far too hard for this. 
China had the capabilities to become a world power in its own right, and for this to be achieved, Beijing would have to open itself up to the world, and present, in the process, a more inclusive side to communism. Openly avowing such aims would almost certainly damage the Soviet relationship, and hand Stalin more ammo which he could lob in Mao's direction. Nationalist policies, or aims which benefited China before they benefited the ambition of world revolution, in other words, before they benefited Stalin himself, could be decried as Titoist and a further deviation from Moscow's paramount example. Mao, like Stalin then, would have to tread carefully. It was, in fact, in the Chinese Civil War that North Korean soldiers first acquired a glimpse of the style of conflict in the 20th century, which the Second World War had helped to develop. From their base in Manchuria, Soviet-occupied North Korea and its burgeoning communist regime under Kim Il-sung would have its policies directed and its soldiers ferried to their required front lines of the internal struggle. All the while, North Korean soldiers gained valuable experience and the Soviet presence on the peninsula, as per the terms of the Yalta Conference, seemed vindicated. The fact that Stalin acted unflinchingly in his efforts to send his own soldiers to support Mao's regime demonstrates that he thought little of those elements of the 1945 treaty with Republican China that he did not wish to preserve. As per the terms of that agreement, Chiang Kai-shek's deal was meant to have been a swap. Stalin would occupy key portions of Manchuria, Mongolia, and another few ports, in return for the Soviet pledge to stop helping Mao's communists. Stalin, of course, had no intention of upholding this end of the bargain, because it would hamper him in his attempts to influence Chinese affairs to his liking, so basically he lied his head off Chiang Kai-shek in his assurances that he hoped this 1945 treaty would somehow heal the civil war's wounds. As Stalin well knew, only the opening of these wounds would grant Moscow the opportunities it required to insert itself forcibly in Chinese affairs. A distracted China was a good China in Stalin's mind, and it would enable him to implement the same imperialist policies of expansion not dissimilar to those of the Tsars. Tsar Nicholas II, after all, had inflamed both British and Japanese sensibilities, of course also the Chinese sensibilities, but sure who cared about them at the start of the 20th century? Anyway, he occupied Manchuria after the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, and much like the Tsar's forces took far longer than was reasonable to leave, Mao could not be sure that whatever treaties he did sign with Stalin in the future would be enough to compel Stalin to go back to where he came from. Mao thus had to be in a strong position at home before confronting the Soviets, and to do this he had to bring the civil war to its conclusion. What a shame for Mao it was then that in January 1949, Chiang Kai-shek, knowing that he was on the losing side at this point, attempted to appeal to the Security Council of the United Nations for mediation of the civil war. If we weren't really following the story at this point, it may surprise us to see Stalin jump at the chance to mediate the Chinese Civil War. Surely he'd want the Chinese communists to win in this struggle against capitalism. Well, of course, no, he didn't. He wasn't really looking for the triumph of communism against capitalism. He was looking to prop up his own interests in China. And we shouldn't even put it past Stalin, considering how eagerly he jumped at the opportunity, that one of the Soviet Union's own agents might have suggested that Chiang Kai-shek appeal to the United Nations in the first place. 
Since this would, after all, fulfill Stalin's aim to secure a divided China, this time through an official UN ruling, what could be more legitimate than a UN ruling? If China could be divided by an internationally organised and legalised treaty, so more the better. What followed were a few icy moments in January 1949, when Mao was perhaps first made aware of the extent of Moscow's expectations. Torpedoing the mediation offer, Mao declared that It is for the people of China itself to choose the way to achieve peace, unity and democracy. The government of the USSR cannot accept mediation between the two sides. Victory, Mao wrote, was already in sight and The balance of class forces in China has already changed irreversibly. We are therefore inclined, Mao reasoned, towards the unconditional surrender of the Nanking government. But Stalin would not be so easily put off. He wrote that to refuse such overtures would put the banner of peace into the hands of the Kuomintang. In other words, the Republicans. Driving the point home further, Stalin detailed to Mao the way in which the communists could advance their cause through peacetime in a coalition government, as the communists continued to do in Eastern Europe. Stalin, it was apparent, was certainly paying attention to the goings-on in his satellites. This is our understanding of the issue and our advice to you, Stalin added before concluding ominously. Maybe we were not able to present our advice clearly enough in the previous telegram. Mao had actually read Stalin loud and clear, thank you very much. He had simply deemed the time to be right to forge ahead with the first of many independent Chinese policies. From this point, Mao attempted to make clear his intentions to successfully conclude the civil war in the favour of communism, while he did everything he could to spur his armies on. On the other side, Stalin was doing all he could through mostly diplomatic pressure channels to halt the communist offensive and take away some of the bite that Mao's forces had. If he could slow them down, reduce their enthusiasm, or perhaps accidentally leave an opening for the Republicans to exploit, then a mediation peace deal of great strategic interest to the Soviet Union could well be the result. With this in mind, and after having refused Mao's requests for a face-to-face meeting between the two communist leaders, Stalin informed Mao that he was sending him a consolation prize, a Soviet diplomat by the name of Anastas Mikoyan, to negotiate the next phase of the Chinese struggle. Underlying these arrangements in January 1949 was the implicit fact that the more successes he gained, the more leverage he would have, while the less opportunities Stalin would have to get what he wanted. Almost defiantly then, Mao attempted to step up his efforts to achieve victory once it became clear that Stalin's interests in the conflict were growing. The opportunity to meet with a representative of the Soviet Union, though, was far too good to miss. Pausing at the Yangtze River before the Great Offensive, which was to sweep through the Republican defences for the rest of the year, Mao waited to see what Anastas Mikoyan would have to say for himself. Mikoyan was no pushover, and believed wholeheartedly in the Bolshevik cause. An early admirer of Stalin, Mikoyan was born in 1895, and he would hold several important posts, including on the Board of Trade and Foreign Affairs. As first deputy premier from 1954, he was the second highest-ranking official in the Soviet Union for a time, behind only the chairman, Nikita Khrushchev. Tracing Mikoyan's career, though, his failure in the negotiations with Mao represented a strike against him in Stalin's mind, 
and during the second Stalinist terror of 1948-53, Mikoyan was lucky to escape with his life. In our 1956 series, we'll see that Mikoyan by no means dropped off the radar when Stalin died. He continued to have a very important role in the so-called collective leadership that followed and played not a small role in ensuring that Nikita Khrushchev would eventually seize the top prize. Back to his meeting with Mao, though, and before long it was apparent to the Soviet official that Mao was far more confident and secure in his position than Mikoyan had been made aware. Perhaps expecting to meet the same dependent Chinese leader who had first been approved by the Soviets in 1935, the Mao Zedong which greeted Mikoyan 15 years later was not only standing on his own two feet, he was also perfectly willing to tell the Soviets what China needed and what Stalin could expect. It is incredible today, considering the position of the Chinese on the world stage, to look at the demands which Mikoyan held close to his heart as he met with his Chinese counterparts. Stalin has signalled that the victory of the communists over the republicans, and Mao Zedong's unified political and military control over the entire Chinese mainland, would be tantamount to a disaster for Soviet ambitions in the region. To begin with, Mikoyan was to present himself as an agent of peace, a messenger from Stalin who could bring to Mao all of the benefits of victory that he desired, without having to fight a protracted war in dirty and difficult circumstances. How nice Stalin is. But Mao was already committed to this struggle, and in his mind there was no option other than to finish what had been started as early as 1927, when the Republicans and Communists first fell out of favour with one another. As an agent of peace, Mikoyan was to propose what essentially amounted to the division of China, the creation of two Chinese dynasties. Soviet friends abroad, commented Mao, half believe and half disbelieve in our victory. They are persuading us to stop here and make the Yangtze River a border with Chang to create the northern and southern dynasties. According to Chao Enlai, Mao's foreign minister and a man we'll become very familiar with over the next few episodes, it was Stalin who demanded that we stop the civil war and he attempted to create the northern and southern dynasties, namely two Chinas. Mao was determined to shatter this illusion which the Soviets continued to propose, but he would have to do so with Soviet sensibilities in mind. Thinking of the bigger picture, Mao recognised that Mikoyan's embassy could well represent the beginning of a new era of relations for a new China, and he wanted to start the negotiations off well. It was in this calculating and far-sighted mindset that Mao set out his agenda to Mikoyan, and covered a range of issues from the future makeup of China's regime, to relations with Moscow, to a more general comment on foreign policy. Delicately referring to one of his own personal bugbears, Mao noted to Mikoyan that some Chinese people demanded the unconditional surrender of Soviet-occupied portions of China and their incorporation back into Chinese hands. Mao also brought up the old chestnut of the Manchurian issue by claiming that these same Chinese wished to have a share of the Manchurian railway business, the same railway line which had originally led the Russian czars into Manchuria in the first place. At all times, Mao maintained a sense of dignity and reserve which he hoped would signal his distinction from the other petty Soviet vassals in Stalin's camp. 
If his tone did not give it away, though, Mao was eager to spell out to Mikoyan that he intended to restore Chinese national confidence after so many decades of depression and humiliation. This task of rebuilding would be aided by Chinese siding with the Soviets, of leaning to one side, as Mao would call it. Yet Mao was as adamant as he dared to emphasize that this did not mean he would be content to endure any kind of unequal partnership. While he needed Stalin's help to rebuild China, this help could not, must not come at the expense of Chinese national pride, which was already at a low enough ebb. Describing his general foreign policy as inviting guests after cleaning the house, Mao stated that when it came to Stalin, he wanted the Soviet Union to recognize communist China's government first, that is, before he cleaned his house and got the country back on its secure footing. With this recognition, the Soviets would make plain their intention to treat fairly and honestly with Beijing, and Mao would reciprocate this favour by remaining a firm ally to Stalin in the region. Yet Mao was clear that after cleaning up his house, he would invite other foreign guests to stay within it. Homely metaphors aside, what Mao was really saying was that he fully intended to establish full diplomatic relations with as many states as possible, including the Americans, but that the Soviet Union would have first dibs on the goods, in return for helping China to get back on its feet. Mao did add that he tolerated no evil designs on Chinese territory, though, and in a message which Mikoyan claimed left him astonished, noted the following highly quotable piece of advice, saying, We think that as our liberation war makes more and more progress, we will need more and more friends. Here I speak of genuine friends. Friends are divided into genuine and false ones. Genuine ones are sympathetic to us, support us and assist us, and demonstrate sincere and honest friendship. False friends are friendly only on the surface. They tell you one thing but do another, or even devise some evil designs. They fool the people and afterwards take joy in the people's disasters. We should be alert on this point. Mikoyan went home to Stalin in late February 1949 to face the music, armed with the unfortunate news that Mao would not be the pushover or easily manipulated figurehead as had been hoped. The old party-to-party relationship and the opportunities Stalin had taken advantage of to dictate to Mao in the past were to be a thing of the past if Stalin wished to count on China as a friend. Stalin's fleeting hope as spring 1949 progressed was that Mao would suffer some kind of humbling setback on the field, but mostly thanks to his growing power base and defecting Republican officers at this time in the lead-up to the campaign, this seemed highly unlikely. Yet perhaps the one silver lining for Moscow was that Stalin was not alone in feeling the brunt of Mao's determined nationalism. At the second plenum of the Seventh Party Congress in March 1949, Mao took a tough stance against the West and issued guidelines for how a complete eradication of Western imperial influences was to be achieved, as the British looked on with trepidation from Hong Kong. In addition, Mao announced that all old contracts negotiated during Chiang Kai-shek's supremacy were now void, all deals were to be renegotiated on the principle of equality, and Mao would stand for nothing less than the closure of all Western propaganda organs, in other words, no more foreign newspapers in China, and the ripping up of those treasonable treaties, as he put it, which had enabled Western powers to hold territory and hold certain ports. 
The British again looked on with trepidation and likely thanked their lucky stars that their lease of Hong Kong still had 50 years left. Mao, it seemed, was not willing to destroy all vestiges of historical imperialism. The British, after all, could be a convenient counterweight to the Soviets and Americans. Mao's initial meeting with Soviet representatives was under somewhat prickly circumstances, but Stalin likely didn't take it too personally, or perhaps more accurately, he'd been around the block long enough to know that Mao's stance would soften in time. By driving a hard bargain, or by being seen to drive a hard bargain, Diplomacy 101 dictated that over time, asking for less would be seen as a compromise rather than losing face. If you asked for more than you expected to get in the first place, then, well, to put it this way, everything else that you got was a bonus. While Mao considered these principles of foreign policy, he attempted to ramp up his diplomatic efforts towards the Soviets. Chao Enlai, the aforementioned communist foreign minister, noted that this new approach towards the other nations of the world was a critical change in Chinese thinking, and would in turn result in a shift in how the rest of the world viewed the Chinese. Noting the purpose of US foreign policy to split the Chinese and Soviets, which we'll look into in future episodes, Enlai noted with some optimism that no force can prevent China from having two friends or more. In the same document, presented to American receivers on the 17th of April 1949, Enlai softened his stance, thus proving Stalin's initial suspicions correct. China would no longer regard all treasonable treaties signed before 1945 as void, but would instead investigate all such treaties on a case-by-case basis, signalling that possibilities existed for certain agreements to be renegotiated or even to be left standing as handy loopholes. Mao was not so blinded by ideology that he believed all agreements made before 1945 were naturally destined to be treasonous. Instead, he was giving some symbolic ground after initially coming off so strong, in a bid to demonstrate some goodwill to those who were listening. Mao may well have had good economic motivations for softening his tune. While at the moment strategic talks with the Americans were not wise, there was no reason why some form of trade negotiations might not be arranged. Trade could deepen mutual understanding and lead to an exploration of diplomatic ties on the basis of equality, as Zhao Enlai himself put it. Stalin's ears naturally perked up at any suggestion of Chinese approaches towards the West. Thinking that he would at least have the first picks of the Chinese bunch, the idea now that China could well be open for business forced him to act before all Soviet advantages evaporated. China must not reject establishing official relations with some of the capitalist countries, including the United States, Stalin insisted, but added that Mao should do so only if these states officially abandon military, trade and political support of Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. Their request here was as ironic as it was striking. Stalin was asking from the West something that he hadn't even done himself. Soviet agents remained in place with the Chiang Kai-shek regime until its final escape to Taiwan at the end of the year. In any case, why was Stalin requesting that Mao only treat with powers that ceased recognition of the Republicans? Did Stalin not want to ensure the division of China? Did he not hope to ensure the propping up of Chiang's regime so that any such division could be achieved? Such double dealing was explained by Stalin's latest foreign policy device. That is... Blame the Americans. The policy of the United States, Stalin explained to the Chinese Communist Party, 
is aimed at splitting China in the south, middle and north with three governments. If you want to have a unified China headed by communists, you ought to establish relations with only those capitalist governments that officially abandon support of the middle and southern groups. The implications were again astonishing here. Stalin was imputing on the United States the exact same policy which he had tried to use to little effect only a few months before. This common theme of Stalinist policy, that of apportioning blame onto a third party for a policy which he wanted to implement himself, would rear its calculating head repeatedly over 1949-50 in Sino-Soviet relations. What can we say was the purpose of this manipulation? If Stalin had given up hope of propping up Chiang Kai-shek's regime, of halting the communist advance, or of dividing China into North and South regimes, then he didn't lose heart when it came to the different means by which he could delay the establishment of Mao's communist regime by itself. By placing blame on the Americans, Stalin was attempting to put some heavy roadblocks in the way of any Sino-American agreements down the line, and to sow resentment and discord between Truman and Mao, in a bid to further isolate the Chinese and secure them in the Moscow camp. Stalin could also use the American excuse as smokescreen for previous Soviet efforts to divide the Chinese, but since Mao had been there at the negotiations and heard such mediation proposals from the Soviets themselves, these attempts at trickery likely had little genuine effect. By reporting on the American duplicity, Stalin could also present the Soviet Union as a friend to China, or even as a protector looking out for Mao's interests and those of communism internationally, of course. However much Mao bought into these explanations, and it's unlikely that he did all that much, it helped the Soviet image that they had an answer for previous trepidation and for hampering Chinese contacts with the outside world. Since it was well known that the Americans continued to struggle with the notion of abandoning Chiang Kai-shek's regime, as did the British, Stalin's idea that Mao should demand no trade be conducted with China until such an act was done, bought the Soviets some time. In such a way, whether Mao Zedong believed him or not, Stalin's cynical approach to China's future had placed him in a position to have greater influence over Chinese affairs than the practical circumstances of the day may have warranted. Yet such a control could not last. As we'll see next time, China was to come forcibly face-to-face with the British administration in Republican China. Once the Communist offensive in late April 1949 crossed the Yangtze River and progressed towards several foreign embassies which maintained relations with Chiang Kai-shek's embattled regime. Stalin may have been able to manipulate Chinese foreign policy, but no Soviet representatives had been sufficient to halt the march of Mao's communist legions. Next time we'll continue our analysis of Sino-Soviet diplomacy, so I hope you'll join me then. Until then though guys, my name is Zach and you've been listening to episode 5 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.